Well, why don't you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 today. If you need a Bible, we have uh, hardback Bibles on either side of the sound booth on the shelves there that you're welcome to use. Uh, if you don't own a Bible and you'd like one, there are uh, uh, paperback Bibles that you're welcome to take, and uh, that would be our gift to you. So you can just hold your place there in Luke uh, chapter 15, verse 1, and we'll look at that here in just a few minutes. Have any of you... I mean, this, this is really a rhetorical question. Have, have you ever lost anything that was extremely valuable to you? Can I just see a show of hands? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much everybody has done that. Uh, perhaps you lost an item that was very expensive, or perhaps you lost something that had great sentimental value to you. You know, actually, this hasn't really happened to me, but it happens to Michelle a lot, so I am uh, pretty familiar with it. Just joking, it has happened to me. Uh, uh, most of us have had this experience, as your hands uh, illustrated, at some time or other, and we know what a horrible, horrible feeling it is. But we also know something else. We know what a wonderful feeling it is if and when the item is found. You know, maybe you've had the experience of being lost yourself. Uh, perhaps you were hiking and uh, lost your bearings. I, places I hike, that would be impossible, but uh, some of you may have gone deep enough into the woods that that would be possible. Uh, maybe you were driving through an unfamiliar city, you made a wrong turn, uh, you, you were lost, and you felt your anxiety level rising. And so you can identify with what an awful feeling it is to be lost. But you also know what a wonderful feeling it is when you finally find your way out or, or someone comes along and helps you find your way out. Back in 2008, I attended a conference in Detroit, uh, the Detroit area. And during a break from the conference, I decided that I was going to drive to downtown Detroit just to see the city. It's quite a sight to see. And um, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> probably a mean joke, though, which is why you didn't laugh. Uh, and I wanted to see the downtown area, and I wanted to see where the Detroit uh, tigers uh, play. So uh, I drove down there and, and saw all of that. And then on the way back, I was absolutely certain that I was retracing my steps. <laughs> but I finally uh, figured out somehow, instead of, instead of going uh, west, I was headed north. Great with directions. Uh, with, with uh, you, you know, north, south, east, and west. And so I was going the wrong way. And so I started to look for a way to correct what I had done. It was uh, getting close to rush hour uh, at this point, and, and uh, traffic was pretty slow, and uh, the road that I had accidentally gotten on was moving at a snail's pace, and so I was really struggling with what to do. And, you know, I was looking for one of those exits where you can just exit, go across the, the road, and exit back the opposite direction. Couldn't find any of those. And so finally I saw a street name. That, that I had, uh, that I remembered from when I had looked at a map uh, before I had left. Didn't have my smartphone in 2008, so I couldn't, couldn't do it on the smartphone, but I remembered uh, some of the street names. And so I got off on this street that sounded somewhat familiar to me, and I thought this street would take me from downtown Detroit all the way back out to the suburbs where I was staying. Now, it was going to be the long, slow way to get there, but at that point, I didn't know what else to do. So I got off. 
And as soon as I got off and, and started down the street, I realized that making a wrong turn in Detroit is not the same as making a wrong turn in Pataskala. <laughs> and I became very concerned that I was in a place that I probably should not be in. But I decided it was my only option. And, and so I just, I just stayed with it. And, and to make matters worse, my, my 1997 Honda Accord was starting to give me problems. And so at every traffic light that I would come to, the car would sputter and, and, and shake and, and make these horrible noises that sounded like it was just about to die. And so for nearly 30 minutes, I was uh, rather on edge, but I stayed on the road. And eventually, I was relieved to find that it did take me where I hoped it would, and I, and I came out in a place where I once again felt safe. Uh, by the way, after that experience, uh, we had someone in the church at that time that was from Detroit, and so I asked them, I said, hey, you know, I got lost while I was in Detroit, and you know, this is the road I, I got on. It seemed a little scary. Like, should I have been concerned? And they said, yeah, you probably should have been concerned there. <laughs> By the way, uh, the rapper Eminem uh, starred in a movie several years ago called Eight Mile. Uh, some of you may remember that. I was on Five Mile. <laughs> so I was well within <laughs> the area I shouldn't have been in. And uh, so I was lost. And it was with great joy when I finally arrived back to the place that was familiar. When you lose something valuable and you recover it, there's great joy. When you get lost and you find your way out or someone helps you find your way out, there is great joy. And this is what our text today is about. As we continue our series in Luke that we've called Radical Love, we come today to Luke 15, 1 through 10. And in these verses, Jesus shares two parables uh, with the people who heard him that day and with us. And these parables deal with loss and the recovery of what has been lost. And these parables reveal to us some very important things about God. And so if you have your Bible and you're holding your place there, why don't you follow along as I read? Here's what it says. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him, to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner 
who repents. I want you to notice, first of all, that what we've read today comes directly after what Ben uh, preached on two weeks ago, and that is Jesus' teaching about the high cost of being his disciple. And, And note that chapter 15 begins with tax collectors and sinners gathering around to hear more from Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are standing around muttering about how Jesus welcomes the wrong kind of people. The wrong kind of people had heard about the high cost of following Jesus and they were still interested. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were only interested in continuing to preserve the distinction between themselves and everybody else. We'd like to think that this doesn't happen in the church today, but we're fooling ourselves if we think that it doesn't. You know, at some level, I believe that, that most Christians, those who have uh, really come into a saving faith in Jesus Christ, I think that most really do get it, that Christ's mission is for the least, for the uh, last, and for the lost. And, and, and that those whose lives are totally displeasing to God are exactly the people for whom Christ came and for whom the church is to reach out. I think most Christians get that. At some level, we all understand as well that we are those people. At one time, our lives were totally displeasing to God, and far too often, even now, our lives continue to be displeasing to God. And so we celebrate, most Christians will celebrate Jesus' heart for sinners. And we will scorn the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. But have you noticed that consistency is not a great attribute for human beings? Have you noticed that? And so we often find ourselves in the role of the Pharisees. We point fingers at them, we sneer at them, we talk about how awful they are, and yet often we find ourselves playing the role of the Pharisee. You know, it may not happen in the vineyard quite as frequently as it might happen in a more traditional denomination, but I still occasionally am surprised at the indignation that will bubble up to the surface from Christians in response to people who are far from God acting like people who are far from God. This should not surprise us. People who are far from God act like people who are far from God. We we, we shouldn't be surprised. We we, we don't need to be indignant about that. It's it's the way it is. I still occasionally see evidence of self-righteousness that masks itself as godliness and gets very concerned with the sins of the wrong kind of people. Or sometimes it's not even outright sins that cause us to get so concerned, but some perceived violation of a cultural norm that might not have been a cultural norm since 1930. And so we find ourselves pulled. Ben liked that. What's wrong with the rest of you? Ben thought that was funny. And so we find ourselves pulled 
in two different directions. On the one hand, celebrating God's heart for sinful people, and on the other hand, offended and indignant about sinful people. And the parables that Jesus told the crowd in Luke 15 come to us as a strong reminder of God's heart, Christ's heart, his concern for those who are outside of his will, who have removed themselves from his leadership of their lives. He cares for them so much that he'll welcome them and he'll eat with them just as they are as he lovingly pursues them to come under God's care. Jesus first shares the parable of the lost sheep. Now, now shepherding isn't something that we're very familiar with in 2012. I think most of us probably envision a shepherd with his little flock of sheep uh, sitting peacefully in a grassy field beside a pond as the sheep graze obediently and the shepherd skips rocks in the pond. That's probably kind of what we envision, but that really is not what shepherding was like. Shepherds in Judea had a very difficult, a very dangerous job. A pasture for the sheep was scarce. You you, you couldn't just uh, take your sheep any old place. You, You had to find a good place for the sheep, and the terrain was such that it was easy for the sheep to wander off. Sometimes it was very easy for them to to even stumble off of the path. And shepherds were personally responsible for the security of their sheep. If a sheep was lost, the shepherd had to either bring the sheep home or bring the fleece of the sheep home to explain how the sheep had died. Coming back without the sheep really wasn't an option. And so shepherds became experts at tracking and could follow the straying sheep, uh, foot, the sheep's footprints through uh, the, the hills across many miles. It was all in a day's work for a shepherd to risk his life for his sheep. And many of the flocks at that time were communal flocks. And so there may be two to three shepherds out in some general area together uh, tending the sheep of the community. And when a sheep was lost, those, those flocks that were safe would re- return back home. And, and those shepherds would report that there was still one shepherd who was out in the field because he had a lost sheep and he was looking for it. And so the whole village would, would then be in anticipation as to whether or not the shepherd would be able to return with the sheep. And so they would watch the horizon, anxiously waiting. And when the shepherd would finally uh, come toward the village with the, the sheep across his shoulders, there would arise from the whole community a shout of joy and thanksgiving because the lost sheep had been found. Jesus tells this parable to the sinners, the Pharisees, to his disciples, and to us. And he wants us to know that this is what God is like. God is as glad when a lost sinner is found as a shepherd is when a strayed sheep has been brought home. And then Jesus tells us the parable of the lost coin. The coin described in the story was a silver drachma. It was the equivalent for most peasants of a day's wages. William Barclay informs us that losing a coin such as this uh, would not have been difficult in a peasant's house and finding it would have been extremely difficult. 
You see, the houses were very dark, often lit by nothing more than an 18-inch circular window, and that would be the only source of sunlight coming into the home. The floor was just beaten earth covered up with reeds, making looking for the coin very difficult, very much like looking for a needle in a haystack. And so the woman would sweep the floor, hoping that she might hear the coin as she would sweep the floor, or, or that uh, either through the sunlight that would come through the window or through the lamp that she would light, that she would see a glint from the coin as the light would hit it. And Barclay provides us with two possible reasons why the loss of the coin could have been so troubling to the woman. First of all, peasants living in Palestine were always living right on the edge. Very little stood between them and hunger. Losing the equivalent of a day's wages would very likely mean that the family would not have their, their food, that they would not eat, they would not have a next meal. There could have been a more romantic reason. The mark of a married woman at the time was a headdress made of ten silver coins linked by a silver chain. And it would take years for most peasants to amass the coins, to save and acquire the coins, and secure what was very much the equivalent of a wedding ring today. In fact, these headdresses were such special possessions that... They were not even permitted to be taken from a woman to repay a debt that otherwise could not be paid. And so the woman must find the coin either out of economic necessity or from uh, romantic and sentimental necessity. Much as uh, you married ladies here would desperately search for uh, your wedding ring if you lost it. Imagine the joy of finding the money for your next meal if it meant the difference between being nourished and starving. We can't really relate to that because most of us don't live there. But, but try to imagine the joy at finding the money that would, would allow you to remain alive Imagine the joy at recovering recovering your lost wedding ring or some other possession that was immeasurably valuable to you. Jesus says this is what God is like when a lost person, a sinner, is found. The joy of God and the angels in heaven is like the joy of a home when a coin that stands between them and starvation has been found. It is like the joy of a woman who loses her most precious possession far beyond the value of money and then finds it again. Think of the time that you were the most overjoyed at recovering a lost item. This is what God is like when people who have wandered away from Him, when people who have intentionally turned away from Him are found. When they finally turn from their wayward path and turn back to Him. These are the two parables. And from these two parables, I believe that God wants us to understand some things very clearly about Him. And for today, I want to focus our attention over the next few minutes on five things that I think God wants each of us to know. By the way, I will tell you we're going to go a few minutes late, and we had a lot of extra stuff today. So do not blame the preacher. Okay? All right. We should learn from these parables that God is a seeking God. 
Christ came from heaven to earth for the purpose of seeking and saving the lost. The great Jewish scholar C.G. Montefiore notes that this is a revolutionary idea that God actively seeks out sinners and brings them home. The rabbis of Jesus' day would have agreed that God would welcome a penitent sinner. But it was a very new idea that God would not only welcome a penitent sinner, but that God would actively seek out the sinner. It was a revolutionary thought that God would take the initiative to find those who are lost. You might be someone who has never surrendered your life to God's rule. You have purposely, intentionally lived by your own rules, done your own thing, charted your own course without any thought for God. By the way, I'll just stop here and mention that that is the definition of sin. You say, hey, this word sin, that doesn't compute for me. Well, well, there it is. That's the definition of sin. Disregard of God, charting your own course, throwing off God's rule of your life. And it is the definition of being lost. When the Bible talks about being lost. This is what's in view. You're doing your own thing. You're outside of God's care. You're outside of God's rule. You're outside of God's protection. You need to know today that God is not simply waiting for you to change your mind and come to him but rather God is actively seeking after you. You might be someone who knows Christ as Savior, but you've wandered off. You've turned away from a life of obedience to Christ and you've started to do your own thing. You've allowed sin to rule over you instead of Christ. You need to know that God isn't just waiting for you to come to your senses. He is actively pursuing you. The sheep would never come to its senses. Sheep don't come to their senses. They are, they are dumb, dumb animals. <laughs> the coin would never present itself to the woman. The sheep and the coin would only be found by the active searching of the shepherd and the woman. And God is actively searching for you. You say, how is God actively searching for me? Let me give you just a, a couple of examples. He is actively searching for you through the coworker who invited you here today. He is seeking you through the friend who loves you enough to tell you that you're on the wrong path, Christian, who has given yourself to sin. He is seeking you through the movie that you watched last week that had an unusual emotional impact on you. And in some weird way, despite of all the things that were wrong with the movie, God spoke through it and illustrated to you that your life is not what it should be. And of course, God's ultimate act of seeking you was when he sent his one and only son into the world to die on the cross for your sins so that you could be reconciled to him. God does not wait for us to come to Him, but instead He actively seeks us. And if you're far from Him today, He is actively seeking after you with great determination. We also learn from these parables that God is kinder than men and women. He's kinder or more kind, whichever you prefer. Strict Jews of the day, listen to this carefully. Strict Jews of Jesus' day did not say 
there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That's a revolutionary idea. Here's what they said. There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. You see this attitude in the Pharisees all of the time. They were happy to write off the tax collectors and sinners as beyond hope and deserving of nothing but destruction. But not God. Not Jesus. That's not his view of things. While we may sometimes give up hope on someone who is far from God, that isn't true of God. He does not give up hope for people who are far from him. He doesn't give up on people who are far from him. Some of you here today may not be living a life that's pleasing to God. You may have had somebody that's written you off. Maybe your parents, you sense, have given up on you. Maybe a friend has concluded that you're beyond hope. Maybe your spouse has given up on you. Maybe you've been verbally condemned by someone indignant over your sin. Let's be clear. Certainly God is displeased with your sin. He's displeased by your refusal to yield to his rule of your life. He'll certainly bring conviction to bear on your life. But here's something you need to know. No matter how many times you've resisted God's appeal to you, no matter how many times you have rejected God's rightful rule of your life, God has not written you off. People may have written you off, but God hasn't. When others write us off, God doesn't. God still has good plans for you. He is seeking you so that He can save you, so that He can bless you with the life that is really life. What you're doing now, if you're honest with yourself, if you'll, if you'll truly be honest with yourself, you know that what you're doing now is not working. God wants to recover you for himself so that you can have real life. The third thing that God wants us to know from this passage is that Jesus searches for sinners because God rejoices at their recovery. Jesus searches for sinners so that God can be a rejoicing God. You know, the Pharisees are like the older brother in the next parable that Jesus tells that we'll deal with next week, uh, the parable of the lost son. The Pharisees are like the older brother in that they are resentful of the younger brother, the sinner, when he returns home and is welcomed and is celebrated. But God is like the father in the next parable who, who throws a party when the wayward son finally comes home. You know, Pharisees are often guilty of pouting when people who haven't lived right decide they want to follow God now. That they want to forever hold their past over them. But God's not like that. God rejoices when a sinner repents. Jesus says in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. And then he says in verse 10, in the same way I tell you there is uh, rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Listen, 
There is no antagonism on the part of God toward people who have been far from him and ignored his rule of their lives when they come back to him. There is only rejoicing that they have been found, that they have finally turned toward him. You know, we often think of God, at least I'm tempted this way, as being dispassionate. I don't know if you have that thought, but, but sometimes I'm tempted to think of God as being dispassionate. You know, he, he knows the end from the beginning. There, there's nothing that, that he's not aware of. And, and so we uh, reason that since nothing surprises him, nothing excites him. But that's not what Jesus reveals to us about God. When a sinner repents, God rejoices. And all of heaven rejoices with him. To say it another way, God gets excited when a sinner repents. Think about that. God always has been, always will be, knows everything, gets excited when someone repents. If you're living apart from the will of God for your life right now, I have good news for you. You are a party in heaven just waiting to break out. (laughs) That's what you are. God has not given up on you. He is waiting patiently to rejoice over you. Another thing that we need to learn from this teaching of Jesus is that God wants servants who share his passion for recovering the lost. Now, now understand that those hearing Jesus that day were the tax collectors and the sinners, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and Jesus' own disciples. And there's a message for each of these groups in these parables. And the message for Jesus' disciples then and now is that what excites God should excite us. What causes God to rejoice should cause us to rejoice. What God is passionate about, we should be passionate about. God's excited about the recovery of the lost. He rejoices over people being found. He is passionate about seeking and saving those who are far from him. And if we're going to be Christ's disciples, we must be passionate about what God is passionate about. And yet, can we be honest with one another today? Often, our actions betray that we don't care at all about what God cared enough about to send His one and only Son to earth to die for. The seeking and the saving of lost people. You say, that's sort of harsh, Brian. Well, it may be. But sadly, it's often true. We don't tell people about Jesus. I mean, I I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you tell people about Jesus. As a group, as we don't tell people about Jesus. At least not, not like we would if we were passionate. We often don't live our lives in a way that anybody can recognize anything different about us. We're not passionate. 
Too often we can't even muster up the courage to invite someone to church. Low bar item. Can't do it. I'm talking to myself. Not beating you up. I'm including me right in the target audience of these comments. We are too often not passionate at all about seeking lost people. But God is. And if we're going to be his disciples, we need to allow him to work on our hearts in such a way that we become passionate about what he's passionate about. You see, God sent his son to die for the sins of mankind, to seek and to save the lost, because absent being found, the future is bleak for the lost. God is passionate about this because absent being found, the future is bleak for the lost. You know, but we practically believe that this world is all there is. I don't mean practically as in we almost believe this world is all there is. I mean functionally. The way we act is as if this world is all there is. We don't allow ourselves to think of the reality of millions upon millions of people separated from God for eternity. But God knows the reality. And so when his plan of redemption gains another lost person, he rejoices with all of heaven. The lost have been found. The condemned have been redeemed. It's a cause for celebration. And it's a passion that God expects his people to share. Finally, if you're here today and you would say, I'm honest enough to admit that I am in that group that the Bible calls lost. God wants you to know how incredibly valuable you are to him. In the parable, the shepherd leaves the rest of his flock, the 99, to go out and search for the one sheep that is lost. In the parable, the woman searches carefully until she finds the coin. doesn't stop. She searches until it's found. God loves all of his people, but his heart is so inclined toward the one that is lost that Jesus says he is like that shepherd that leaves the 99 to search for the one. Friend, more more than that even, Jesus left the splendor of heaven. I mean, this goes beyond leaving some sheep to search for you. Jesus left the splendor of heaven. He didn't consider equality with God something that he needed to cling to. And so he humbled himself to become a man. You are so valuable to God that Jesus Christ, God, left heaven to search for you, to seek after you, and to save you. Jesus said of his seek and save mission in the book of John, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. Romans tells us that Jesus was crucified for our sins. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us to pay the debt we couldn't pay and to redeem us for God. The writer of the book of Hebrews calls Jesus the great shepherd. And Jesus, the great shepherd, loves you so much that he not only risked his life for you, but he actually gave. He laid down his life for you. He died for you. That's how valuable you are to God. 
And finally, you're so valuable to God that when you're finally found, when you finally turn to Him in repentance, the God of heaven, the creator of everything that is, the one who knows all the mysteries of the universe, the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who spoke the world into existence, and the one before whom every knee in heaven and earth will bow, the one whom nothing surprises, this God who's always been and always will be, breaks out in rejoicing over you. He never gets tired of it. It's not a case of been there, done that. Oh yeah, I saved them 2,000 years ago. Been there, done that. Nah, whatever. God's not like that. He breaks out in rejoicing when the lost are found. And so if you're here today and you know you're lost, maybe you've never surrendered to God, maybe you're not living consistent with your confession of faith and so you, you feel very lost, God's not angry with you. God is seeking you. He wants you to turn to Him no matter what you've done. No matter how many times you've done it. And if you do, he's going to welcome you. He's not going to reject you, but he's going to welcome you. And God, I mean, try to get this picture. God is going to be excited over you. So let me ask two questions. One question to two different groups of people. For those of you who identify yourself as followers of Jesus... Will you join the search for the lost? Will you allow God to work in your heart to make you passionate about what he's passionate about? Will you lay aside self-righteousness and indignation at how sinful people behave to welcome them, to eat with them, to seek them? Will you care enough about people Jesus loves to share Jesus with them? To tell your story of salvation to them. If you can't do anything else, can we at least muster up the courage to regularly invite people to come to church with us? And for those of you who are willing to admit that you're lost, maybe you've gotten lost in dishonesty, maybe you're lost in depression, maybe you're lost in some type of immorality, maybe you're lost in the ultimate sense that you've never received Christ as your Savior. Those of you who are honest enough to admit that you're lost, will you finally today respond to the God who is seeking after you? Will you stop running? Will you stop resisting? Will you turn to God in repentance and receive the love and the salvation that he's wanted to give you your entire life? Will you do that? Why don't you stand up?